I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... A special edition of Little Atoms, recorded at Future Everything 20, in Manchester, on the 26th and 27th of February 2015. This week's show is a special edition, recorded at the 20th anniversary of Future Everything, in Manchester. The show features a short interview with Future Everything CEO and founder, Drew Hemant, and then a long live interview with the writer, researcher and activist Alice Bell, followed by three more short interviews with Sonic Pie creator Sam Aaron, Hack Circus founder Layla Johnston and data artist Ger Thorpe. Thanks to all the Future Everything team for helping me organise these interviews and showing me a fantastic time in Manchester again this year. I'm talking to Drew Hemmen, who is the founder and CEO of Future Everything, which festival I'm at. So Drew, can you give us a... A brief recap of what Future Everything is. Yeah, Future Everything is an organisation that's best known for our annual festival. Uh, We've been running that for 20 years and it brings together pioneers in digital art, digital design, uh, music and ideas. But we also do a lot of projects uh, year-round in everything from uh, city data to climate services. And as you just mentioned, this is the 20th year, so congratulations on that, first of all. Every year the festival has themes, so what are the themes for this 20th anniversary? For this year, we've kind of done something a little different. Uh, Most editions of the festival kind of look over the horizon at some technological disruption or some social development uh, that we think is going to be significant, and we bring a community together around that to explore it, to probe it, We stage design experiments that test various uh, hypotheses about the near future. Um, And in the 20th anniversary, we're kind of taking stock a little bit, not just because it's the anniversary year, but there's a bit of a sense at the moment uh, of an end of a narrative. Uh, We've been driven on by, uh, you know, a belief in the emancipatory potential of the Internet, and there's been a real kind of activism driving us. And in the last 18 months, we've really seen, you know, some of the negative consequences really hit home. Massive state-sponsored surveillance, but also economic centralization and the, the more corrosive side of the digital economy, which is driving inequality. So this year, we're kind of uh, 
taking stock a little bit and saying, okay, so what now for some of the values and, and narratives that have put the wind in our sails over all these years? And, and what are the values and narratives for the decades to come? What are some of the highlights over the four days of the festival? The festival has a, a conference uh, very much in its centre and then uh, quite a big uh, art and live and film programme. The conference has looked at what now for identity, for ownership, for democracy, uh, for the weird and wonderful. And uh, it's absolutely been amazing. There's a keynote by, by Warren Ellis. Uh, he's someone who's really given a voice to digital culture, really put into words the, the DNA of, uh, of our times, really. And, and then there's also there's a conference within the conference called Haunted Machines, and that's looking at how there's, there's agency, there's agents, there's algorithms that shape our experience and really shape us, shape our data doubles in ways that we can't see and that's a very very strong part of the conference it's really shaping new ideas um, outside the conference uh, we're really delighted we've got Blast Theory return uh, Blast Theory are one of the UK's most celebrated new media art groups and over the 20 years they've worked with us uh, several times so it's a return of old friends and their work is always always shatteringly good you know um, there's a big live programme, some uh, several world premieres and new commissions, uh, really stunning work by uh, Memo Atkin. And then we've also got our inaugural film programme. For our 20th year, we decided to do something new. And then the final thing is the, the Festival Lab. The ethos of Future Everything is, well, we call it Festival as Lab. And it's about not just you know, presenting shiny objects or shiny ideas, but staging experiments that actually test uh, a possible future. Um, and so we've got a whole series of experiments, uh, including uh, an experiment in an internet of bikes, where you can take out network bikes equipped with sensors and basically navigate the city, experience the city in a new way, come back and then tell stories about what you've found. So we're talking now in Manchester's amazing imposing town hall and the festival's been held here the conference has been held here for this year and last year but as you've just hinted at the festival spreads out right across various venues of manchester so what's future everything's relationship with the city yeah we've got a really close relationship with manchester um a lot of uh, organizations and events like ours kind of parachute in wherever there's uh, uh good funding and we've stayed in manchester and laying down really deep roots and that's meant that we've been able to have a very different relationship with the city uh, we do a lot of projects outside the festival and we've actually really shaped the city the city's digital strategy uh, you know we led the development of open data in the city uh, we set up the Greater Manchester Data Store. And so we kind of got a different relationship with the city where there's a, there's a real partnership there. And, and right now, uh, it's an interesting time in Manchester. Uh, there's some pretty big developments here, and it's good to be in this space and be able to work with people to shape that future. So as well as the four days of the festival that we're talking about now, you've got lots of other stuff going on throughout the year and since the last festival, which I, listeners will know I made some special shows out, there's been a Future Everything Moscow, for instance. So what else have you got going on? Yeah, well we, we, do, uh, we do events elsewhere, so as you said, we've just done a, a full festival in, in Moscow, which was uh, amazing, and we, we've rounded up and brought back to Manchester every interesting person we could find and we've got a lot of projects we've brought over. Um, so yeah, we do, we do events 
events and festivals in, in other places. But then we've got year-round programs, which are more sort of, you know, innovation and design, service design. I mentioned before we've done a lot of work around city data, open data. We do citizen science projects, engaging citizens in capturing data and making sense of their environment. Uh, we've got a big program in climate services, and that's basically we work with the UK Met Office to create uh, bespoke forecasts. They bring the forecast, and we bring the the design. So data design, data visualization, user experience design to create these services where we present useful information for different industries. So that's about bringing our kind of art and design skills into other spaces, in that case science, whereas with some of the other stuff it's bringing art and design into cities. Drew Hammond, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. Neil Denny, my pleasure. Ben Goldacre, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Yeah, welcome to this last fireside chat of the day. Um, I'll introduce you to Alice Bell. Alice is a writer and researcher specialising in science, the environment, innovation and politics. She's the editor of How We Get to Next, teaches at the City Journalism School and reports on climate change for the Road to Paris blog. She was previously lecturer in science communication at Imperial College, where she also set up an interdisciplinary course on climate change. And we're going to be talking about climate change for a bit, but then we're also going to go on to some of Alice's other concerns after that as well. And to begin with, Alice, it's, um, it's 10 years since the Kyoto Protocol was brought into force. I mean, it started a long time before that, but was brought into force 10 years ago. So I guess we should start, first of all, talking about what that means and what's happened since then. Happy birthday, Kyoto, I guess, about, about a week ago. The brought into force is relevant here because it could have been a lot older. And it might, you might think, 10 years old, Kyoto? Like, you might be thinking back, I'm sure I was younger than that. You know, where did the... It's not normally you think back and it was more recent than that, you know? Like, that seems really recent, but something that you remember from, like, the 90s. It's because it took a very long time to actually kind of get teeth. And even then we could question how much real bite it had. But, uh, yeah, it kept getting delayed. Uh, basically, America pulled out. Bush pulled out, citing all sorts of reasons why he felt it was not going to work. And it was set up so that a certain percentage of the global emissions, or the, the certain number of countries that were responsible for a certain amount of global emissions, had to have agreed before it would take part. It had to get to that point before it would be allowed to go into force. And with America, that was... The, amounts to quite so much of those emissions pulling out, it kind of got a bit stuck. So they sort of renegotiated things around a bit and, and Russia came in and that solved the problem just about. But yeah, that's, so that, that's, I think, and that's also probably what it means is its legacy is that we tried something quite spectacular, trying to globally agree about cutting emissions and it didn't quite work because we're still trying to get that big treaty that's going to work. So... We're going to talk a bit about the, one of the blogs I mentioned, the Road to Paris blog, and that's named after the fact that in December of this year there's going to be another big climate conference in Paris. So what did we learn from Kyoto that's going to be fed into Paris? 
I think one of the things we're seeing through the official process of what, well, what we've officially learned, what people at the UN would reflect upon, rather than... I mean, there's different ways you could take it. There's lots of things that activists would say, or climate sceptics might say, or George Bush might say, but I think the official line is, as close to that as we'll get, a kind of orthodox line would be that one of the reasons why Kyoto failed was that it was asking quite a lot from a lot of countries. For various reasons sort of on the ground for their local policies and politics, that wasn't going to fly. And so countries like America found it very difficult to sign up. Um, and so they've kind of changed, rather than having this big ambition that everyone signs up to, and we agree and we're doing this big inspirational thing, they're going to maybe start a bit low and then like ratchet it up a bit. So when we also, the other thing we've had in between then is Copenhagen, where we tried to have a, another big treaty and, and failed. And that failure is another thing that's sort of colouring how we're looking at, at Paris. So Paris is going to be a slightly different treaty from the ones before. And one way of looking at it is that it's really, it's not ambitious enough. So you look at the things that people have got on the table about what they're pledging, and it doesn't look, it doesn't look strong enough. That would be a fair criticism of, of what it looks like at the moment, is it's going to be quite a weak treaty. But it's designed so that you can match it up and build that ambition over time in the future. So actually the post-2015 process may be really important. It's hard to tell at this stage. And another analysis of that from one of the campaigning perspectives might be that these governments are just not doing enough and we need to demand that they do enough and we need to build a civic movement or some other movement um, in order to force that. Or that the UN needs to battle against people like big players like the US more strongly or we need to look at what's wrong in the US system globally. I mean, there are different ways of looking at it, but I think that's the kind of big message that you take from the other ones to Paris. How would, we, how would we do that, do you think, like enforce that? Because there's obviously a balance to be struck between asking a load of countries to do not quite enough but them doing that or demanding too much of countries and then not doing that and we're still both in exactly the same position in both cases. Well, either way, yeah, we need to rel- check it and that's a big question for sort of what's going to happen post-2015, which is still the UN and various people around them who are kind of involved in, you know, the negotiators and the various countries that are putting their pledges over at the moment are being very vague about what that's going to look like. So actually having just a, an editorial meeting this week where we're about, one of the things that we hope the scientific community will be able to help us with is telling us how they're going to measure these things and how they're going to they're going to be part of responsible have some of the responsibility for checking up on this but what they can offer us scientifically but also what we've also got political questions of people like the un and the UNFCCC, who are the bodies that look on these things of what bodies are they going to put in place and and how is it going to be enforced and that we don't really know yet uh, it's still quite vague it is maybe worrying that at this stage in the negotiations these things are a bit vague because we normally expect to know a bit more by now so what other aims are there at paris then what are the what are the main sort of broad what do we think is going to happen? Well, I think we're looking for a treaty on emissions cuts. Uh, one of the things that has been going on, and one of the things we can maybe say be thankful for Kyoto for, actually, is another sort of thread of things that are going on around this, is having money that can be put to help developing countries deal with climate change. The larger politics of this is that in rich countries cause the pollution and poor countries are going to suffer from it. That's the blunt way of putting it. If you're at the UN, you can't say that. You have to like say, oh, you have to cloak it in all sorts of policy stuff because people get upset when you say things like that. But they're trying to deal with, they're having, trying to have some kind of mechanism that will allow countries that are going to have to take a lot of the brunt of climate change but don't necessarily have the resources to be able to deal with it, build systems, not just only to have uh, low carbon growth, but also adaptation and preparation and, and risk reduction procedures. Um, and some of that's money. So we've got the Green Climate Fund, which has been going for a couple of years. And things like this sort of started at Kyoto. So they've been running through ever since, gradually, every, every year. But also technology transfer and expertise. And so I think that's something else that we'll see discussed. And is, is currently part of the discussions on the rights of Paris. Um, and may also 
feed into some big talks that will be happening in New York in September, which are the UN Millennium Development Goals process, which overlaps with some of these kind of conversations. So we'll see a kind of spike in that conversation then and maybe know a bit more in September, ready for, for December. What's the purpose of the Road to Paris blog then? Who set it up and what's it for? That blog is uh, it's set up by the International Council of Science Unions, which is like, because each country's got their own kind of like, they're kind of like superhero scientists. No, that's, that's how we're putting it. <laughs> There's various bodies of like super groups of scientists where you kind of get them together, uh, like the Royal Society or the National, National Science Federation, and they're groups of like high up scientists that help manage science in their countries. And ITSU is like all the country's super scientists together. And they're based in Paris, and so they're very interested in the Paris talks. But they, one of the remits of things that they do, one of the reasons they were set up, was always to do with environmental science mm-hmm. and the ways in which that interlaces with the policy process and kind of scientific advice to policymakers. So they just are an offshoot of, one of some of their comms work is that they set up a blog to kind of track this process. As it happens, everyone else is tracking it too, and they're all using our tagline, The Road to Paris which we thought was a joke and sounded kind of funny, like a movie. And now everyone's saying Road to Paris, but we're the official one. We'll be the first one, anyway. We'll all be familiar with media on climate change, and it's often sort of doom and gloom, and specifically around things like, you know, countries are not signing up to Kyoto, countries have pulled out of it, the US is not doing enough, and things like that. You wrote an article on that blog, the, the Road to Paris blog, about reasons we have to be optimistic about the future in terms of climate change. So why? Why should we be optimistic? Because we never seem to get that message. Well, one of the reasons I wrote that was partly because we're told we have to be optimistic all the time, especially if you do climate comms. We're told you're just making everyone miserable, all you eco-miserabilists, you have to be cheerful. And it was kind of responding to that that I was... So maybe my first response is actually I don't think we should be cheerful. It is bad. It's a bad news story. And we've already screwed up the planet for lots of people and condemned lots of parts of the planet, but importantly, the people who live on it already with the actions that we've done. And I think we should have an emotion about that. I think we should grieve for that. We should grieve for the species we're losing. And when you say stuff like that, you sound, you get labelled a bit of a deep green hippie very quickly. But I think lots of... You can be serious and deep green hippie. I'm not a deep green. But I think lots of other people very seriously should say that and can say that and do say that, that... This is a bad thing, and we need to embrace that badness to be able to kind of understand it. But on top of that, that doesn't mean we have to be entirely covered in despair. And I think one of the reasons why people push an idea that you have to have some glimmer of hope is that we, there is still a lot of space for things not to be so awful. If we just give up and put our heads in the sand and do nothing, then it will be, it will be really awful. But if we stand up and go, right, we're grieving for what we've done but we're not going to let any more of that happen and, and we're going to change things and have an optimism of the fact that we can deal with, with it, that we could have dealt with it earlier, but we can, do, we can still do things, we can still save most of what we value in the world and that we love lots of things about the world and so we can save them. I think that's to, it's to kind of enable a space to be able to go forward. And there are lots of things to, to... There are lots of ways in which climate change is changing the world or forcing us to claim, change the world, which are awful, but they're also positives. We're seeing all sorts of new social movements and technologies and exciting things that are happening. There are lots of exciting jobs around climate change. I don't think it's crass to say that, as long as you acknowledge that there is a, an underlying awfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, there is particularly our former environment minister secretary in the UK was quite keen on saying that we needed to find the positives in climate change because, you know, hey, we could grow grapes in the south of England. And I just think that's fantastically crass when people are dying. When you say, oh yeah, climate change is good, it's a benefit. 
I think that's just a horrible thing to say. But you can still appreciate that there are good things around that um, as long as you don't dismiss the, the badness. Well, there was also a lot of talk in that article about businesses and you know, businesses are doing things and innovative things and not, you know, just, not just small startups doing interesting things, but big businesses as well. And I found that quite surprising. So what sort of things going on? Well, I think one of the reasons I covered that was one of the, some of the push to be optimistic comes from the business field. And I think that's to do with, we'll save you discourse a bit. Uh, but it's also that you don't have to necessarily be down on what they're doing. Um, and I guess well, the difference between big and small is that some ways of thinking about action on climate change have been argued that we have to make things small and do things small and distribute things small. And others say, no, we can still have a faith in the power of big technology and big society. I don't mean big society in a David Cameron way. I mean people working in large scales together to do something large, like big science or even maybe in a Soviet sense. But, and I, I personally think we want to have a mix of both. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these two ideologies are kind of working at play against each other a bit at the moment. And it's one of the new ways in which we're seeing kind of what you could call the new climate optimists are business coming into it. Um, previously, climate change activism has been seen as a very left-wing thing. I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. Arguably, it's been quite right-wing always, actually. But um, In what we, way? Because that, that will sound surprising to people. Well, I think... If you talk to activists who are... When I, I've done quite a lot of work on history of, of 1970s activism recently, and a lot of the people I was talking to were saying that they didn't like the environmentalists because they were all Tories. Um, and I, don't, I, don't, I think it's mixed. I think like, if you look at somewhere like the Green Party or Greenpeace or any of... Well, maybe not Greenpeace, is more left-wing. Not necessarily, though. Friends of the Earth, lots of them. They're ideologically quite mixed. And one of the reasons why people are interested in green politics is sometimes because they can interact with people outside of a right-left dichotomy. Mm-hmm. It's why half of the people involved in the, the heads of those positions are aristocrats and stuff. Well, yeah, They're people I that care about the countryside, not the, necessarily the environment. The other thing I was going to say was there's this con- conservation link. So, I mean, there's, mm. there's a long strand of, of ecological thought associated with very far-right stuff yeah, sure. all across Europe. Uh, everyone likes to oh, cite... Blood and soil and stuff. Yeah, people like to cite Hitler <laughs> and things. But um, the, there is sort of... Not quite at Hitler's stage, but you've just got... But just generally the kind of conservation and conserving. Look at the origins of the World Wildlife Fund. You've got some sort of left-leaning scientists, but also some... They were always designed to work with power when they set up, um, and they looked at power as big business and royalty, you know. In fact, Silent Spring, one of the... Which is sort of seen as iconic in helping people in the late 60s and 70s think about the environment. One of the ways it came over to the UK and had any impact in the UK was through Prince Philip, who you won't necessarily associate with conservation because he likes shooting things, but he likes things to be there to shoot, and he likes a lot of the animals around them. You know, the kind of a connection between aristocracy and the green movement is very strong, although that's mm-hmm. not necessarily right or left because sometimes they don't play sure. to those games either. If we've got time, I want us to come back to that 70s radical movement because it's absolutely fascinating. And a few things I want to talk about, but they all sort of come under the vague heading of why you left academia. So I want to talk about that. Why did you... What were the, some of the reasons why you decided you couldn't work in, in academia anymore? Is anyone here an academic? <laughs> it's a very small majority of academics in the room. I'm just like, you really horrible people. <laughs> And I can feel myself becoming a horrible person. Not all academics. It's partly the field I was in. And a lot of, several of the departments I worked in were lovely. I, worked, I really worked with some really amazing, inspiring, interesting people. Some of my best friends are academics. But, um, <laughs> but there was, there was, there's cultures around it which just encourages an isolationism and an attitude of being quite 
on your own, which I found isolating and boring, and intellectually I wasn't stimulated very much because I wasn't around people. Um, the systems for communicating with other people like through journal articles and everything I just think so profoundly broken and just so slow moving at any uh, point of change that I just gave up. I mean, for a couple of years I'd go to, conf- I'd go to job interviews and people would say, job interviews for a lecturership in science communication and they'd say, when are you publishing your monograph? And I said, well, I just put my PhD on a PDF on my website. If anyone wants to read it, they can read it. There are more interesting and useful things I could do. And like, yeah, but you don't get the points, which give us this way of getting this other point, which gives us this other point, which maybe unlocks some funding. I'm going to go and spend my time bidding for better funding. And you just look at their faces and they're like, you're not playing the game. I just got sick of that. Uh, but on top of that, there's a kind of macho attitude, incredibly sexist, incredibly racist. And I just got fed up with that. And I found myself hanging out with my own friends and being horrible to them and I realised it was because I was an academic and so I, I, I must admit when I looked round and saw the hands put up I think most of the people that did were women so I'm sure you're not going to get many many yeah. arguments on that uh, no, I mean some academic men are lovely and some academic women are horrible <laughs> including myself, I was one of the reasons I left because I was turning into one of those horrible academics rather than nice academics it's partly my own failings Let's look at some other other stronger, more easy-to-agree-with reasons, I think, then, as well. So the first one is particularly around climate change and and sustainability, funding to universities from fossil fuel companies, mining companies, oil companies, and things like that. So what's up with that? Well, there's a long association between fossil fuel industry and universities. Many of them have strong links, and they learn a lot from each other. And it's been in the news recently with a guy in America who's been shown to have a lot of funding from climate... Well, has been defined as climate sceptics. It's hard to... Whether you label people like that is slippery. But he's taken a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry and uh, not declared it. That's the problem. That's where he's actually breached code, codes for various groups that he's part of or journals that he's published in. Um, and so it's become a larger issue with senators in the US. Um, you know, There are people kind of writing to... Uh, fossil fuel companies and saying which scientists do you fund and which I think a lot of them will apply with yeah loads of them we did this really useful work on like uh, analysing this bit of rock or something BP sponsor a huge lab in, Ma- in Manchester uh, on materials it was one of the biggest uh, grants that the University of Manchester had got that was a couple of years ago and I, so I don't think it turns all these scientists into bad scientists because they've taken fossil fuel money at all um, and I'm worrying a bit about the way it's, the discourse of this is being played out in America mm. at the moment. Um, they sort of go, oh, if you've taken fossil fuel money, you're not a real scientist. I don't think that's true. There's long-standing ways in which they've worked together, and so scientists know how to be independent in this context. In fact, one of the reasons why the fossil fuel companies are pay- paying money to the scientists is because they're independent. They value that independence. That's why they're not employing their own. They're going to universities. It's not because they're cheaper. It can be occasionally, but most of the time... Uh, universities put on loads of extra charges for running their libraries and everything, so it's not cheaper. Yeah, I think, I think so. I, that, that's the thing I don't worry about. But I do worry about how it skews the direction in which we take research. Because there's all these different things we could study, uh, but we go for that one because that's the one that's interesting for the oil company or something, mm-hmm. and then we forget other stuff. So it's more about the research that doesn't get funded that I'm worried about than the research that does. Um, and I, that's something I did notice, uh, well, that was a real contributing factor to why I left in, uh, academia, was that I would have all these different choices of things I could study, and it was only the ones that were going to be serving particular entrenched interests that I was told I was likely to get funding for. Yeah. And I just, that's not what you, academic, academia should be about. It should be about creating new, offering us opportunities to create new ideas in the future and disrupt systems of power, not just play to what we've already got. It, that just seemed intellectually boring, but also probably quite corrupt. 
Um, and even for saying that, I got I remember a colleague of mine shouting down the corridor, don't be such a Marxist. Like, I'm not a Marxist. I just think taking money from a publishing company to work on the study of publishing is probably a bit problematic. And yes, yeah, that's what I, I also worry about it in teaching. So that's somewhere I hit up against it in, in Imperial was... Um, a few of my colleagues seem to think that it would be appropriate to have the oil and gas industry involved in a course on climate change. And I thought, it probably should be. But I balanced that with a lot of other contexts that helped my students critically understand the role of that. And that wasn't seen as so appropriate. In fact, my bulk of my colleagues at Imperial, I think, were very savvy when it came to thinking about engaging with industry. But not all. And it is worrying because there is a lot of pockets of political naivety around that. And science that amorphous thing, science itself, uh, historically and still today, has always had you know, huge links with the arms industry, and that's obviously something that, that's, that's problematic. So I don't think we need to talk about what's wrong with that, but what, could we do, what do you think we could do to sort of divest the one from the other? Well, there's a, a big campaign at the moment that the campaign against the arms trade have just launched to say that all the money that we put, public funds that we put into the arms trade, we should move to renewables and to put that conversation on a climate change footing. And off, uh, really pushing the idea of research and development and scientific work, which I think is really interesting to see a campaign like group, group like that work on science funding or focus on campaign message on science funding. So, they, yeah, they argue that we could just shift those resources. I don't think it's quite that... It, that would involve quite a large change, social change. It will take time. Mm-hmm. It would be simple. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it's not a simple. It's not a simple ask. From my experience of teaching at universities where that kind of research goes on and training for careers in those sort of fields and being working in science education with young people that are sponsored by things like VA systems as well, um, is just acknowledging it and talking about it. Because I think if we're going to invite a 16-year-old to go and train for a career at VA systems, they should know what VA systems make. And if they then say, great, fine. People have different ideas about the arms trade. But I don't think that's really reflectable. So you go to Big Bang Fair, because Big Bangs are exciting. We think about science, we think about Big Bang, the Big Bang, making explosions. Science Fair for kids. Of course you call it the Big Bang Fair, sponsored by BA Systems. I know, it's just a kind of... You don't even know how they thought that was a good idea. Um, it's a great fair, though, really. Like, a few years ago, I went and it was really bad, but it's got, it varies, but the last few years it's been really good. And I know there's lo- I know loads of people who work in it who are brilliant. It's always got pockets of just wonderful stuff in as well. Um, so if you get an opportunity to take some kids, do take them. But sometimes the BAE stand just seems to think that it can just obscure what it, it can just not talk about what it makes, which is understandable when you're like surrounded by 11-year-olds. You don't want to talk about weapons, but then maybe you shouldn't be there. So they do stuff like, oh, it's all about maths. Will you come and play with some maths and just abstract it as if, oh, we'll let you do some really hard maths, kids. Do you like maths? Come and work for us. What? Why is that mass being used? I think you should let the kids know where it's being used. Or last year they had a, uh, an exhibit saying how much work they'd done on the Olympics and how they helped sports tech. Or the year before last was really funny. was the one they had a display on how they'd help build beds for, ki- for people who were suffering from injuries from mines. Because that's what BA Systems do. They help people who are dealing with uh, being wounded. That, that's what they do. Um, and it's just, I just think that's... And you see this in the universities as well. You talk to colleagues about the arms trade or something, and they go, yeah, but it's really interesting work. Yeah, it totally is interesting work, I'm sure, but you could be doing interesting, the same interesting work in another context, and you're not talking to your students about what that interesting ball bearing does. And so that's, that's the thing I think what I'd really like to see. If we're going to say that we can justifiably spend this amount of money on the arms trade and make this amount of money out of it, 
then we need to talk to the people who are the, our children about it. Or, you know, then we, or we have to admit that we have a moral problem with it ourselves. How we get to Next, which is an, a website that you're the editor of, um, I want to talk about some of the things you've written for that because I think there'll be of interest to the, the audience that would come to future everything. Um, but first of all, what's the, what's, the, what's the sort of mission statement behind that website? Um, I guess it's sort of... Because there's this TV show called How We Got To Now, which is sort of history of innovation. It's on our BBC Two at the moment, 7.30 on Saturdays, Catch Up, which is presented by Stephen Johnson. It talks about sort of telling long stories about how we develop the innovations that we have well, the, the world that we have today, and looking at how interconnected that is. It's not just about lone geniuses. or and it, Because it was a, a US-UK joint endeavour in terms of making a, a TV show, it's not either country going, our country made everything, which you sometimes get with the history of technology. I think as a consequence of mixing the two together, you're like, oh, lots of people did it, that's great. And Stephen's really quite strong on the idea that it's lots of people work together and sometimes unexpected things happen by accident and innovation isn't a simple line. Um, so we wanted to talk about sort of the next stage of that, which is why we're how we get to next after how we got to now. Um, but think about how it's, there's all these different choices for the future we could have, as I'm sure people at Future Everything are, are quite kind of used to thinking. Like, there's one way of thinking about the future, which is someone at Apple goes, here it is, here's an advert, just watch it and take it. You know, here's the future, take it. Or there's like, well, let's, what different things do we want to imagine? What are we going to do with it? Where are you seeing problems that other people haven't seen them? Um, so that's a kind of as much of a mission statement as we got, is that we'll look at what are possible different directions, multiple different directions in the future we could have, um, and what people are doing now that could go off in all sorts of different directions. Well, I will direct the audience to go and look themselves in their own time at Alice's fantastic article on the history of Gunge from children's TV shows, but we won't talk about that one now. Um, I want to talk about DIY stuff, DIY gas masks, first of all. That's, that's a really interesting thing. So um, what are they? The DIY gas masks for protecting against tear gas uh, attacks. Um, I've stumbled across this where I was talking to this art historian who'd been working at the V&A, and um, he'd come across people in... He just found this on, it being shared on the internet, instructions on how to make a gas mask out of a water bottle and a sponge and some other bits and pieces you might have on the streets around you. This is, it's a joke that activists say that you see the police all turn up with loads of gas masks on and, like, amazing kit. I don't know if you've seen Selma where they all the police tied up and they're kind of in armour. And you're like, who's dressed for the riot? And the protesters are completely naked in that respect. You know, they, they've just sort of got whatever's around them to protect them. So as a consequence of lots of different civilian groups being, having, uh, having tear gas lobbed at them, they've kind of made ways of protecting themselves. And a very simple one is just a bandana soaked in, in um, vinegar around your face. But you could, they've developed a much more technical one, but just using like basically plastic bottles. And people have refined this and tinkered with it all over the world. And Gavin had realised he doesn't know who invented it. And it really shows off that one, most technologies aren't invented by one person. It isn't a eureka moment. It's lots of different people lots of doing different things. So we could find the first person who, like, cut a plastic bottle in half and, uh, and you turned it into a gas mask but they probably wasn't even them who invented it and it's, the consequence of what we've got now has been gone through so many different ways anyway, Gavin was working at the VNA and he thought, I'm going to make a leaflet of how to make this gas mask I think it's cool that people are doing it I think it's interesting and it's interesting to see people in Palestine sharing it with people in Ferguson and, it got, and then you can trace back like some of the, the uh, he saw a picture in Turkey on a photograph of the protest in Turkey pinned to a wall with instructions on how to make it that were in Arabic and he traced that back and think it came from Syria it's like there's this whole global network of people giving advice about how to make stuff to protect them in a protest yeah and so he, he thought he'd make a leaflet of like how to, how to make a really good one and in the v &A lab 
labs, they kind of polished the idea a bit to make a very clear set of instructions. But then this leaflet that was meant to be an art object, kind of, at the V&A, and a bit of publicity for, a, for a, a, an exhibition at the V&A, went viral in itself, especially around Ferguson, and has been spread even further. And then he think, he think, he's been tracing it since, and he's seen it. Somebody in Ferguson ran gas mask-making workshops using this V&A leaflet, um, and he's also seen it being developed further in, in Hong Kong, uh, yeah, it's going all over the place. It's, just, it's a really, it's a really lovely story of just people finding whatever they had around to protect them, but then going global. And one of the things Gavin said is that you can see activists with advice like that on what to do in protests and sharing information globally. That goes back decades, centuries, even. Uh, things like stuff like the um, reclaim the streets movement. One of the reasons they could reclaim the streets is they could block roads, and you block roads with this sort of tripod thing, which was invented in a protect the forests. Uh, protest in Australia because they want some, there was a disabled activist in a wheelchair and they wanted to be part of the protest in the trees so they made this kind of tripod thing that they could put a wheelchair on top of and then they wrote up instructions on how to make this and in a zine that just, this is in the 90s when not very many people were online and it just got like moved around as people were travelling and stuff and then it ended up in the UK and America and they applied it to roads and that's why we had the Reclaim the Streets movement. With the, with the gas mask because we've got the web, it's just sped up and it's, so it gets it gets shared with the Ferguson hashtag from, Pal- from Palestine. Um, and it's a lovely story of that kind of way of which we get movement of information. Just one more of these, because I'm old and I definitely want to talk about the 1970s, and I promise we would. So, um, Restart Party, there's a bunch of people in... It was a South London thing that you went to. People are basically repurposing, either fixing or repurposing household appliances. Tell us about that. Uh, so Restart Party is a social enterprise, uh, yeah, based in London, but they go all over the country, and I think they've got offshoots in like Italy and stuff as well. Um, and it was set up by some people who were concerned about e-waste, um, like electronics waste. Um, and how much we throw away technology, and how yeah, we break things. Like, how many of you have smashed your, your phone screen? You know, you're, you're, you break your phone screen, you don't really know what to do. And you, so you can get, there are places now where you can get that repaired quite easily. But something stops working, like a, a key stops working on, on, a, on a computer, or a button stops working on a TV or something, and you don't really know what to do. And we're quite distanced from the be, being able to fix things, because our consumer tech has got so complicated so they set up these they're called restart parties and they work often through transition town networks or other they're just in a pub or a community center uh, and people turn up with stuff that's broken and professional fixers or just geeks that want to do it as a hobby help you fix it and they generally ha- try and do it with you so they'll give you the soldering iron so that the idea is to try and get people to feel a bit more of an ownership of their consumer tech by fixing it as well and one often though they find that they haven't fixed they haven't fixed the product like you go in uh, with a, like a Hoover that you love. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ...that's broken in some way. and um, You're trying to fix it and it won't get fixed. And for the people who run the restart parties, um, they kind of feel that that's, that's sometimes a win in itself because you can see that you can't fix these things. And people go away from them frustrated that their Hoover doesn't work anymore still, um, and frustrated that their piece of technology that they own isn't fixable, but they still feel they've learned something because they opened it up and looked inside. And also, by doing that, they realise how unfixable it is and how shocking it is that we are sold technology that you can't fix. So they're trying to kind of enable lots of us to have, well, they're kind of helping us think about the relationship we have with our techno- with technology. They do also fix a fair bit, so if you see one locally, then do go along with some of your broken stuff, because they, they do have some in- really clever people who can, like, at least half fix something but oh, yeah often people go along and they don't fix it but they learn a lot along the way and I think they're helping build a whole movement of people who are, are kind of angry at, at the sorts of technologies that we've got and want people to make slightly different technologies that they're going to sell they're going to if they're going to get our custom as a as a phone buyer or something then it's going to be fixable all right we'll finish off then talking about for years now it would seem you've been interviewing and writing about these people old scientists who were who were part of i'll say the, the radical science movement but they were basically various groups of people weren't they there were there were different movements so tell us who these who these people are and it was just uh, well it was a couple of years ago uh, we were clearing out an office well i'm still an academic we were clearing out an old library at university of sussex and there were these old magazines that were going to get thrown out and um, one of my colleagues just sort of rolled up to my office, left them on my desk and went, you might like this, and wandered off. Um, and there were these amazing, uh, angry um, and funny uh, magazines, all just about the politics of science. Uh, really quite clever, their arguments. And a lot of them, although they were from the 70s, were quite relevant now. And I just how did I not know that these people existed? It kind of explains a lot about how science society is now, that they did exist. And uh, I was looking through the page and I recognised some of the names. They were like people who taught me and... Um, it was like this whole untold history. And I went and talked to some historians who were of the 20th century, and they're like, yeah, we know about them, but no one's ever really studied them. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll do a bit of a study. And I, I wrote a long piece for the Wellcome Trust's magazine, Mosaic, on uh, one of the groups. It's a piece called Science for People. And I uh, went and interviewed a load of these people who've been part of the movement. There was a, so there was a group called the British Society for Social Responsibility and Science, which was a bit of a front group because it sounds really like official, the British Society for Social Responsibility and Science, and they launched with an event at the Royal Society that was opened by a, a Nobel Prize winner, but really behind it all, they were long-haired hippies that had spent, had kind of had, been part of women's groups and sit-ins against the Vietnam War, and they, they wanted revolution. They saw themselves as the white-coated wing of the, re- of the revolution in a 70s sense. And, uh, yeah, they, they were quite active throughout the 70s and then uh, kind of inspired other groups like uh, Radical Statistics, which are still going, the Radical Statistics Society, if any of you are into rad stats. They've got a conference soon. You should go along. Uh, they're great, really good at just 
ripping through bullshit used about, I've just talked about medical statistics, for example, stuff on politics, food, all sorts of different groups. And then they kind of, with the exception of the statistics people, they kind of fell apart in the 80s and it's only really their magazines that are left now. What happened then? I mean, in talking to some of the people that you interviewed, what was their experience? How did that, the sort of enthusiasm of the 70s dissipate? I think there were several reasons. Um... One was that um, they were just a bit burnt out. I think a lot of them had spent a lot of the 70s fighting the revolution and they were just a bit tired. Um, it was also, with Thatcher coming in uh, and all the reforms and quite radical change, there was a revolution, but it was a Thatcherite revolution. That was our scientific, she's an ex-scientist, that was our scientific revolutionary, it was actually Thatcher, but it was a different type of revolutionary from what the others wanted. The particularly cuts to the public sector that came in, the privatisation that happened there, just meant they were fighting lots of other fights and they didn't have time to, to think about science. And some of them talked about how they were just a bit upset, that like they'd spent this decade fighting for who they thought were the people, and then the people voted in Thatcher. And they either kind of respected that and went, all right, or they were just really angry. And I think some of them were really quite upset about it, and it sort of coupled with burnout, I think that sort of meant that they, they moved away from activism. Um, but also they were always a bit of a weird umbrella group where they did, they did loads on Northern Ireland, loads, uh, hazards at work, food, women in science, and radical science was a kind of umbrella for all of that. And we have this weird like umbrella groups in mainstream science, like the Royal Society or the Royal Institution or the British Association for the Advancements of Science. And they kind of deal with this incoherence underneath them of science, under brand science, that kind of, it's useful for scientists, even if they're very different, to get together. And so it might be nice to have an alternative institution like that, which we had with the radical science movement. Um, but it is hard still to manage that incoherence. And so I think they mm. all just sort of dissipated into different groups and hung out with anti-war people or environment people or trade unionists or feminists or whoever they most identified with. Nowadays, we seem to be like a, a time where we need something like this movement. Could anything like that happen again, do you think? Or, or is there anything? I think, I think if we were going to have something like that again, um, it would have to be really of the 21st century. There's been a few people who've gone, oh, this were great, these people in the 70s, let's do it again. They actually built on a group that had been active in the 30s, but they were very radically different from them. They brought in feminism, they brought in a different approach to social change and, and different ways of mediating themselves because it was the 70s. And I think if we were doing it in the 21st century, we'd just have to be a bit... We'd be different again. But also there are a lot of challenges that would stop academics in particular being so politically active as the way they were in the 70s. I don't think they have so much time, they don't have so much freedom. Generally, young people are in a much more precarious position, whether it's housing crisis or employment or just the debt you've got from university. Whereas these people, it was much cheaper to live. They, were, they didn't feel in, they, they weren't, they found it easier. They, they, the people who are now in their, in their 60s are looking back uh, at what they did and they, they talk to me about whether someone could do it today and they just think, I, I couldn't imagine being able to do that today just because of the social position that a scientist would be in. So I'm a bit worried that we don't give scientists enough space. Um, but on the other side, one of the things that fills up scientists' time is we expect them to do a lot of it now. Back mm -hmm. then, they weren't expected to do it, and so they did it in their free time. Now it's part of their job. Now, maybe that's a problem, because if you make it part of their job, then you act in a very official way, and that constrains you, and maybe political action shouldn't be constrained like that. But maybe it formalises things, and maybe we actually have a healthier relationship. Maybe one of the, one of the consequences of this movement in the 70s is now that scientists see that politics is part of their job. And so maybe we're... I mean, there are lots of problems between, of the relationship between science and politics. And there was that senator this week who brought a, a snowball in, into the Senate and went, there's no global warming because there's, here's a snowball. I think it was the Senate. It might be the House, the other one. But anyway, it was American politicians that still do 
things like that is terrible. But maybe we are actually still in a much better position than we were in the 70s. That's a good point for us to finish on. So um, please show your appreciation for Alex. Kratoski, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Sam Aaron is the lead developer of Overtone and the creator of Sonic Pi. By day, he is a postdoc research associate at the University of Cambridge Computer Laboratory, and by night, he codes music for people to dance to. Um, Sam, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. So you're here to talk about Raspberry Pi and your creation Sonic Pi. So I guess, first of all, for our listeners, we should have a recap of what Raspberry Pi is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, everyone's heard of a computer, and so Raspberry Pi is nothing more than a computer. But it's a really exciting computer because it's very, very affordable. It only costs about £30, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very small, and you can put it in your pocket, and and you can carry it around with you if you want, and you can plug it into your telly, so you don't need a monitor necessarily. You can just put it into your normal TV. Mm -hmm. You need just a keyboard and mouse, and you've got a full computer. So it's really exciting that, that it means that more people who couldn't necessarily have a computer could have one, and we can start taking computers into places we wouldn't normally take them. But it's obviously, it's a, a little box, a tiny yes. little box, as you said. There's no screen, there's no mouse, there's no keyboard, you need to add all of those, all of those things yourself. Does that look intimidating to, to people, that it's just, that it is almost literally just like a peripheral, like a piece of... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and yes, you're absolutely right. It, is, it can be intimidating to people, but the real, the real question really isn't about how intimidating it is. I think the real question is how open-minded you are. Yeah. Because I think it's really important that people start to understand that technology isn't going to go away. We're going to get more and more technology. And the more we can embrace it and the more we can understand it and work with it, the better we, we are going to be able to interact with our, our society and environment around us. And so I think that Raspberry Pi is an opportunity to get involved with technology and to, to start to, to open the box and, and look behind the, the shiny covers that we typically have on our iPads and iPhones, mm-hmm. and to actually see what's underneath. And you, you say people need to be open-minded. You take this into school, so do you find you know, school children are more adaptable? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm constantly surprised by how amazing uh, children are at just uh, opening their minds to these things. And even seeing a difference... Um, in the schools I've been to, uh, generally between primary school and secondary school, the second primary school tend to take to this sort of stuff much easier, mm-hmm. uh, much more rapidly. I think that they're much more fearless with their experimentation. They don't really mind making mistakes. They're happy not knowing everything. They're not trying to, to, to be cool or like, be, uh, uh, show off in front of their friends as much. They're much more open-minded and, and ready to explore. So what sort of things do you get them doing? So I'm personally interested in about trying to communicate that code, writing software with, with programming languages, sounds potentially intimidating, like we've said before, but also maybe boring mm-hmm. or uh, associated with apps and websites and who really wants to build those if you're not a commercial entity or you haven't got some, I don't know, something to sell or to promote. Uh, that code actually is far more exciting than that and that it's a really a, a new way for us to communicate and share ideas and to take our own internal feelings and, and to make them 
real. Instead of, therefore, instead of using code to build apps or websites or look at sorting algorithms or all the sort of boring things mm-hmm. you usually hear about, is to use code to express ourselves. And so one of the ways to express ourselves is through music. And so I'm, uh, I've written software which allows you to write code, so simple text, and to press a button, and for that computer then to turn that text into music, uh, and for you then to hear it back. We'll come on to Sonic Pi, which is what you're sort of starting to talk about Absolutely. now, but just before we do, we've said that, you know, uh, the Raspberry Pi doesn't have, you know, it doesn't come with a keyboard, screen, all of that, what you would expect to get with, with a normal computer that you purchase from, from a shop. And the other thing that computers have, you know, Windows, Macs and our mobile phones is, is a nice shiny operating system as well. So what does, what does this look like when you switch it on and get it up on your telly? It looks brilliant. It looks like something from a science fiction film. You just see a whole bunch of text scrolling. It's like the Matrix. You know, and, and actually that text which is scrolling when you turn it on, it happens on all computers. It's just often the hidden, it's yeah. hidden from us. So one of the philosophies of the Raspberry Pi is, is not to hide this, it's to reveal it, to show you that you can interact with it. And so you see text and you're able to write text and that might seem like a really primitive way of interacting with the computer by writing text and it to speak back to you with text. But actually, I believe it's the most powerful way we can communicate with the computer and that the more we learn about programming as a society, the more we'll be relying on text and programming languages as a way to communicate with computers. But there is one command you can type called StarTex, which will pop up a normal, familiar graphical user interface. Mm-hmm. So that's your usual Windows, you've got a mouse pointer. So you can make it feel like Mac or, or, or Windows if you want it to. But you also start off with this very primitive but very powerful text interface. Mm-hmm. And the Pi, Raspberry Pi 2, has just recently been launched. Yeah, so amazing. what's the difference? What, how has that changed from... <laughs> it's like another world, you know. Um, uh, so the Raspberry Pi uh, 1 was... Uh, it was an affordable computer. But because it was cheap, you didn't worry too much about the fact it wasn't super powerful. Mm -hmm. But this Raspberry Pi 2 is the same price, it's just way more powerful. It's got uh, four more cores, so it's like uh, being able to do four things at the same time. And each of those cores is better, more powerful than the the, the single core on the previous machine. Mm -hmm. So it is actually, it is just a lot more, it's double the memory. So these are all technical terms, but it's just basically a much faster, better computer and you're much less likely to be annoyed with it as you were with the previous one, or frustrated by its performance. It actually just feels like a real PC. So, Sonic Pi then, tell us about what's the concept behind it. So, I mentioned before about seeing code as more than apps and websites and I see it as a a way for us to express ourselves. And so one of those ways to express ourselves is to be able to make music. I really like making music and I like sharing that with my friends. And so instead of learning an instrument like a clarinet or a piano or a guitar, mm-hmm. I was interested to see if I could turn my programming skills into a musical instruments. And this is nothing new. People are doing it for a long time. But what I'm interested in isn't just my ability to make code into music, but to be able to give more people an opportunity to do the same. Yeah. And so Sonic Pi is an environment that allows you not only to create music out of code, but it's simple enough that I can go into a primary school and teach the kids in one day. Uh, and so it's, it's a really very accessible way to learn code, to get started with programming, and also not just to feel, hey, I've made a thing which prints some numbers on the screen, but hey, I've made something which makes music, which means I can share that with other people who may not be so interested in the code itself. It's a way to really to open up code to more people. 
I mentioned in the brief introduction that you're, uh, you're at night, you're going out <laughs> and making music for people to dance to. Is this, is this related? Is it, are you using the, the Raspberry Pi, the Sonic Pi to do that? Or? So for me, yes. Uh, my performance revolves around using the Raspberry Pi because I, I really don't want to go into school and say, hey, kids, yeah. do this thing, but actually it's not what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really feels like disingenuous. So it's really important for me to make sure that Sonic Pi isn't just a, a tool to teach people about programming and creative coding, but it's also a tool that I can use as, as a, a performer. And so it's the tool I use. But there are lots of people doing this kind of thing. There, there's, a, there's a really cool scene called Algorave, where people go to nightclubs and use programming languages to make music. Mm-hmm. And there are a bunch of different tools and languages people use for this. And so Sonic Pi is one of many different tools. But I think it's the most accessible open tool. But it's not necessarily the most powerful. Some, there's some beautiful programming languages. Mm-hmm. But they, they tend to be used by the people who write the languages, and they tend to be uh, uh, very esoteric, and uh, uh, there's a lot of learning curve involved mm-hmm. with these things. What, what do you anticipate happening in the future? Well, so in terms of, of coding music, we had hundreds of years ago, we invented, or well, we invented, we, we evolved music notation, so in, certainly in Western music, mm-hmm. so staves and dots. And that, combined with the printing press, allowed composers to be able to distribute their music mm-hmm. all over the world for it to be performed. And, um, and because of that technology, and it was a technology, exists today, we can take the works of Bach and Mozart and reproduce them, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, music education uh, and has really stuck around this, this it's like it's frozen around this, this music technology. And I think that... There are other branches of music technology which have really gone around all this, and electronic music is a, is, a, is a key example of that. But the problem with electronic music is that there is no notation. Mm-hmm. There is no way to say to take Aphex Twin's latest album and to be able to see the notation, to see mm-hmm. the code that he used to write the music, or the instructions, or the recipe. And so if we can use code to make music, I think we're back to where we were with having a notation, but it's much more powerful because not only could we represent time and pitch, which is really what Western notation represents, we're also able to represent timbre. Mm-hmm. And we're also able to change it as it's being played. And so our notation isn't just for compositions, it's also for performance. And so this, coming back to code, the question was really about code. To me, seeing code used in a wider variety of applications is, is where the future's going. And mm-hmm. I think music is a great example of this. And so being able to hear performance and to be able to go up to the performer and say, can you share the code to that performance with me? And for her to say, yes, mm-hmm. it's on GitHub, you know, here's a URL. For me then to be able to download it, reproduce it, be able to mash it up, change it around, send it back to the original performer, send it to my friends. It's a really powerful, exciting way to, to uh, engage with music using code as the medium. Where can we find out more? Is there a website or something? Absolutely. So, um, I mean, first of all, just, just code your hearts out. But if you're also interested in coding music and specifically Sonic Pi, sonic-pi.net is where to go. If you just Google part Sonic Pi, that's P-I, the mathematical Pi. Uh, but if you have a Raspberry Pi, it's already installed by default. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also runs on Macs and PCs. So you don't need a Raspberry Pi. It's just if you don't have a, a Mac or a PC, then Raspberry Pis are super affordable and you can get started straight away. Sam Aaron, thank you very much for telling me about it. Thank you very much for having me.
I'm Jeff Dyer, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, I've bumped into an old friend of the show, Layla Johnson. So, Layla, why are you at Future Everything this year? Well, I applied for something called the Global Future Lab, and then I seriously got accepted on it. And uh, as a result, they just kind of bussed us up to Manchester for a week and uh, looked after us and found us a hotel, and it's just been brilliant. So I feel, I'm kind of here as a celebrity. Well, not celebrity, a VIP, I'd say. Um, but it's really nice, yeah. So what's the Global Futures project? What is it? As I understand, it's a sort of um, British Council and some other people have sort of got together and found a way of supporting a group of innovators who wouldn't, I guess, otherwise be able to find that kind of support as easily. So they've, anyway, basically it's, it's kind of a technology art innovation program, as I understand. And, um, and because it's British Council, it's global, so they've brought together ten of us from different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually three UK people and the rest are from all over the world. It's absolutely amazing, like... The places that they're from, you know, Indonesia, Nigeria, Ukraine, um, Japan, like South Korea, people that I would never run into mm-hmm. in that situation normally at all, um, certainly not all at the same time from all these different places. And you've come all the way from Sheffield. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so the first night we had this in the hotel, there was, um, the water tank exploded and we were all evacuated at 4am and I was kind of the next morning like, oh, for God's sake, like, oh, I just didn't get any sleep and I thought, hang on, people have been flying in from Japan and South Korea and actually... I only got on the train for 45 minutes, so it's not too bad. But, yeah, it, I do feel a bit um, a very, very kind of lucky and in lots of ways, actually, meeting all these people from different places. And What other sorts of things, what other projects have people got? Um, well, several of them are about data and kind of finding, for example, um, you know, mapping and data and finding out what people are talking about in different parts of your town or different parts of the even different parts of the world, um, and filtering that data. So that's quite a common one. And and they're they're much more, I would say, kind of political or sort of socially motivated than the the sort of thing you generally see in the UK. And Mm -hmm. I think that's because the UK is very privileged and actually doesn't need to be that sort of uh, social and political. Um, So it's really interesting for that reason, yeah. But we do feel, I think the British people feel a bit like, God, we're so privileged and indulgent with our sort of speculative artistic projects, but actually there's a need for real innovation in the rest of the world that you see going through. So you've brought Hack Circus mm-hmm. to Global Futures. I think our listeners will, will, a lot of listeners will know what, what that is, but give us a, give us a recap of, wow, of the I idea behind Hack Circus. Um, well, Hack Circus is a magazine, well, it's, it's kind of a, a creative collective, but it's mostly represented by, at the moment, a magazine and a quarterly event. And it's all about... It's sort of a modern reimagining of what a circus would be. So if a circus, circus didn't exist and it was suddenly created now, what would, how would you do the misdirection? How would you do the entertainment? Um, how would you involve the audience? So there's, there's technology and hacking and things in it. Um, people make stuff for each show. But the themes are always very exciting and edgy. And uh, so we had a show about time travel and um, we've had issues about reality. And we did a show about space travel where we sent everyone into space and... And there's a lot, you never quite know what's real, so some people are actors and some aren't, and um, it's, it's been really, really good fun. So I've just come with loads of magazines and a video showing some of the show, and everyone's been really interested. It's mm-hmm. been great. Well, how's the magazine going? What's happening with it? It's going well. It's, um, yeah, it's uh, more than breaking even now, so mm-hmm. um, it's not actually costing me money anymore, just about, but it's still a bit kind of hand-to-mouth. I, you know, I need... I, I need to be able to fund it. I think I need to be able to fund it from somewhere else. So at the moment, I'm all in, like thinking about marketing and mm-hmm. other sort of business models. But it's interesting. It's a good learning curve. <laughs> When's the next event? 
23rd of March at the Star of Kings and it's Underworlds themed so we're going on a sort of musical journey to the centre of the earth mm-hmm. um, and I'm collaborating with it uh, with LJ Rich on it and she's an amazing musician and the presenter of BBC Click so she's a great sort of presenter and performer and we're writing songs together it's really exciting <laughs> it's mad uh, that's the Star of Kings in King's Cross that's near, right. near um, King's Place isn't it yes yeah, yeah in the basement there so yeah. go down what other things are happening at that night? What's what can if people come? What can they expect mm. to see? Well, um, at the moment we're going we're to be recording songs for it next week, I think. But um, it will be talks about volcanoes and creatures of the deep and monsters and things like this. And there will be a mixture of performance and factual information. Bring a torch. We're going to do something with torches. There'll be uh, some sort of LJ's making some sort of musical hack that I think you can wear and make a noise. And this is going to somehow power our craft. So expect to be slightly interfered with um, in a good way. And um, hopefully just have a really good time and learn some stuff about the underworlds. And, but not just learn, it's mostly not learning actually, it's mostly just listening to brilliant songs and people talking, <laughs> having fun. Now you've been mainly ensconced in a room presenting or you know, talking to, to people coming up to your stall about Hack Circus and the mm-hmm. Global Futures thing and you did a, a brief presentation on it in the main room yesterday but have you had any chance to see anything at Future Everything? Not really. I saw... Um, no, literally we've been just kind of... I've just been on my table. Every time I try and walk away, someone kind of hovers near my table and goes, oh, can I... Is this free? Can I take... And I have to go, no, don't, don't take my stuff. Um, no, I, I haven't had a chance to see much. I saw Steph uh, Lewandowski's talk mm-hmm. and I, I used to work with him so that was quite interesting seeing his take on his, his work and career. But I haven't seen very much. No, I'd like to catch a few things. There's so much going on. Yeah, films and things. Thing, yeah. Mm. Well, um, final question. Mm. Where can we find out more? Where can people find out how to get mm. the magazine, what the yeah. next events are and everything? If you go to hackcircus.com, everything is there. So you can subscribe to the newsletter, um, buy the magazine, subscribe to the magazine, find out about the, all the events we've done, links to videos, it's all there. So, um, And there's a podcast as well, so go and... Look that up if you if you like listening to podcasts, which you may do listening to this. Leila Johnson, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, it's a pleasure. I'm Arthur I. Miller, and you're listening to Little Adams, a podcast about ideas and culture. So I'm sitting with the data artist, Jer Thorpe, and Jer, it just so happens that last week on Little Atoms, I interviewed a writer called Arthur I. Miller, who's written a book called Colliding Worlds, which is about the intersection of science and contemporary art that mm. seems to be happening at the moment. And he thinks that, well, he's basically decided there's a new movement which he calls ArtSci mm. and he, he suggests that art and technology and science are basically just coming together as one new thing I mean as an artist who does yeah. data art does that resonate with you do you do you feel that there's a movement that you're part of yeah I mean that's a good question I think that there's definitely uh, there's definitely a movement at the intersection between art and technology mm-hmm. I think I think that 
defining itself in very interesting ways. And at this conference, we've seen a fair amount of that. <laughs> at a broader level, between art and science, um, in my experience, that relationship is still somewhat fraught. Scientists still see art, artists as like people who can make um, pretty pictures for them. <laughs> and, and, and artists still see scientists as like people who will give them strange equipment to play with. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's relatively rare, although maybe it is happening more to find mm-hmm. collaborations at the Venn diagram overlap of those two things mm-hmm. where the collaboration is actually productive for both parties. Yeah. And that's sort of what I try to seek. So, so can I do art that will be beneficial to the way the scientists are thinking about their work mm-hmm. and, and can the science in turn really inform and, and mesh with the, with the work that I'm doing and that, it's hard it's, it, in, in you, it's something you kind of throw a lot of stones at and hope one of them strikes the right, the right place mm-hmm. You gave the uh, keynote speech on the first day of Future Everything yesterday um, so what was your talk about? Well I wanted to I wanted to talk directly about this word data and, and, and the fact that, A, we don't actually really understand the word very well, despite the fact that we throw it around a lot and we use it a lot. And then I wanted to think about and explore and talk about some of the work that I've been doing that tries to really push against what the expectations are of what what data art looks like. Mm-hmm. I think when... In, in this counts my own early work, but a lot of what we see of data art is really data visualization that's maybe a, a little bit different from what you would standardly expect from data visualization, or maybe a little bit prettier or a little more abstract. And I want to push away from that and find you know, other things we can do with data within an artistic context. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of those other forms of data. So you're, you're, you're data artist in residence at the New York Times. That's one of your roles. So what does that mean? What is so, it? Yeah, I should say I was the data artist in residence ah. in the New York Times. I was there from 2010 to 2012. And, yeah, I mean, that's a title that I quite clearly made up. So I, you know, I was invited to come to the Times. They had had, um, they had, had researchers come to the R&D lab, um, usually professors on sabbatical. The title that they had used in the past was Futurist in mm-hmm. Residence. But I don't really see myself as much of a futurist, so I, I, I uh, suggested this other title, Data Artist in Residence. And, and, and at the time, I, I, re- I really specifically wanted to... I wanted people to react to that title by saying, what? You know, what, what is a data artist? And so it was a really ch- a chance to get people asking that question. Well, when, when I think data artist, I think of a, a visualization, a sort of computer visualization of... Of data and its manipulation, but one of the things you've done um, using the um, the Museum of Modern Art in New York's collection is made a theatrical piece. So yeah. How did that work? Well, so that's the what I showed you in the keynote um, yesterday is, was was a test performance that we did last year, and actually the real performances are happening in the beginning of April, April fourth and seventh, I think, are the dates. And so, what does that look like? It's not quite. We don't quite know. Um, but the idea was to take to take a, a data set. In this case, it's the the accession collection of the um, Museum of Modern Art, which is about 148,000 pieces, <laughs> and to find a way to make that thing a performative object. So, mm-hmm. so we wanted to. The idea is that 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 gigantic scrolling database becomes the script in some ways for how the performance um, unfolds. So the conceit that we've 
settled on is that every everything that gets said by the actors during the performance is verbatim from the database. So it's either a, um, a title of a piece or the name of an artist or a year or a, uh, an indication of dimensions. So anything that's actually stored in that database, they are the, the, the performers can say, so they become a kind of... Um, the, the typical way we, we view a database is through a screen, and so now we're viewing the database through through four, or in the case of the final performance, five actor, actors who become our interface into that thing, which which is a really unusual way for us to interact with a database, and, mm-hmm. and that's the point. We want... That database carries all, all kinds of history and all kinds of little human stories and, 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 and these artworks themselves. And so, can we can we by performing it? I think we give it a, a less sterile uh, function than mm-hmm. it typically would want to have or may not want to have. <laughs> the nine eleven victims memorial project. What was yeah. your role in that? So, I was um, approached by the team that was working on the memorial because. They had come up with this really, I think, great idea, which was that the names around the memorial, while they would appear to be random, they would actually have connections. So family members who died uh, in, the, in the buildings together would be next to each other, as would co-workers who spent their lives together. And, and so the, those things which are called the, they're called the meaningful connections, those meaningful connections were all suggested by next of kin. Mm-hmm. And so the problem, the idea was fantastic, but the problem was very hard to, to position it in such a way that all those connections were respected. And so I was brought in because uh, I'd done some algorithmic design in the past, and it seemed like a weird enough problem that, that they, they needed somebody who understood how to write an algorithm, but also understood the fundamentals of design and typography. And so um, I spent about seven months working on the project, although we sort of solved it in a month, and then the, the six, other six months were about building. We built an interface for the architects so that they could take the solution, but then move, move names around and adjust mm. them and position them properly and then output digital files that could then be printed. Well, I was going to say, because you mentioned... Carved into brass, I should say. You yeah, mentioned brass. this sort of connection of people that, you know, people that worked in offices together or people yeah. that knew each other and were friends, but yeah. uh, all those thousands of people, there must yeah. have been people that had no connection to other people. Yeah. And that's yeah. interesting in itself, it is. so you could do something with that. Yeah, so that, that, the, way that, the way that it works, so if you go to the memorial today, there's an app that you can use that will allow you to kind of see the people, you can see the connections. And there, you know, there were, I mean, almost 3,000 people um, killed in the towers, and, and each of them has a story of why they were there, and, and they have a story of their lives, and there were tourists who, who just happened to be visiting the tower that day. There's a, you know, there was a restaurant, there were people that were having lunch or breakfast, and, and, and there were the, the staff of the, rest of, of the restaurants, the stories are very. Actually, a lot of people don't know that there was a fair number of artist studios in the in the World Trade mm-hmm. Center. So there were people, artists who had come in to do a day's work in their studio, and and so that project was was very difficult because it was hard not to get drawn into the stories. A more current project is called Floodwatch. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so Floodwatch is a browser extension that anybody can install in the Chrome browser, and it allows you to track the advertisements that are shown to you. So every time you open a web page, well, most web pages, you'll see these little placed browser ads. I think a lot of people still don't know the fact that 
the, the ads that you see are tailored to you as an individual. Mm-hmm. So in the three seconds or so that it takes to load a web page, there's actually a series of auctions that happen around you as a valuable consumer, and, and people pay, are paying uh, specific amounts for those ads to be shown to you. And so what the tool allows you to do is to, say, is to track over time what types of ads are you being shown, what are those ads that follow you around over time, uh, you know, one of the things that's quite easy to see, so I'm, I, I live in New York City, I'm in Manchester, if I go and look at my Floodwatch page, I suddenly see a, really, a real break. <laughs> my ads are suddenly all British because they know that I'm here and they're going to show me um, ads for companies that are, that are here, although I still do get some of the ones that follow me around. And the idea here is that this is quite an important thing, that, that you know, decisions are being made based on this persona that advertisers have defined for us although each advertiser has a slightly different version of it. And so, but we never get to see it, so it's a chance for people to see it. And then the second part is, is that you can opt in to donate your data to researchers so that researchers can use this gigantic data set of advertising, place, advertising placements to understand how the system works. And we're specifically interested in researchers who are trying to understand social issues, the, the human rights issues, the kind of infringement discrimination issues that, that, that exist in the adver- online advertising. Mm-hmm. Final question then, where, where else can we see your work? Is there a website? Where can listeners find out more about you? Yeah, yeah the best place, so I run a studio called The Office for Creative Research, and the website is o-c-r.org. And uh, most, most of our work is documented on the web, but we also have a lot of physical work, um, particularly in, in New York City. One of the pieces that Ben Rubin um, led, uh, three, we installed three years ago, is called the Shakespeare machine and it's in the public theater so next time you're in New York City um, drop in and check it out brilliant Jeff Hope thank you for talking to me yeah, pleasure you've been listening to Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture this episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM the show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.